BBC Good Food Show Summer at the NEC. It's been an incredible two days. It's a phenomenally busy Saturday. Uh, and not uh, not surprising as well because it doubles up with Gardeners World Live. But on the food side, I'm delighted that joining me in the studio is Mike Reed. Now, Mike, without any uh, in any way to to undermine the brilliant chef that you are, uh, we just better, <laughs> some people will probably have come across you first yeah. uh, recently. Five Star Kitchen with yep. Michel Rue, where they may have seen you, but we'll, we'll talk about all the other stuff you do in the background. <laughs> but let's get that out of the way first. Yeah. That looks like a whole heap of fun. It, you know, it was a fantastic show to be part of, and I was very, um, it was very much a pinch me moment when I got approached about it because I started my career under Michel, you know, very early on anyway. So, you know, it was almost a full circle sort of moment when I got the call and you know we I had to go and meet him and, and we did a bit of a screen test for it but it, it's a great show you know it's something that I was quite passionate about making because the ethos of the show is not just another cooking competition it's you know we're challenging the chefs to be business thinkers and entrepreneurs and they have to do a pitch to us for their actual restaurant you know it's the whole package we're looking for not just a fantastic chef but someone who can run a successful business as well which I think is a unique space that we've come into. It's interesting to watch because you don't, the three of you don't agree all the time and, no, and you, no. you, you bicker and argue yeah. which is which is really quite nice to see. It's real you know and I said to someone the other day in an interview that I think it's more authentic than some cooking shows in the sense that we tried to shoot it in a way where it's more of a almost a docky sort of style series opposed to glitz and glamour and you know it's a little bit more real and authentic and you know edgy and yeah it's life we don't always agree and we didn't in judging either um, I, people may well be streaming this in, in episodes and not watch so we won't give away uh, anything yeah. uh, about the end of course but um, I, I was it was interesting watching high-end dining like that at the Langham mm. which is is quite some amazing place um, in a time of cost of living crisis and food austerity uh, yeah. and things was that is that a concern or a consideration? Have, have you thought about that? We did, and you know, we, we discussed it at the time. And essentially, we're very sensitive to the current climate that we are all in, you know. But the five star world doesn't stop, you know. There's still people who, you know, the Langham is as busy as it's ever been. You know, people still fly from all over the world to to stay there and to dine there. So. Yeah, we're very much sensitive to the real world sort of um, environment that we're in, but the five star, five star world still has to exist and still has to, you know, go on. And you look at some of the amazing hotels that we've got in this country, Langham, the Ritz, and so on and so on. Mm. You still want them to to be able to run their business. Yeah. I think I guess does the business model change <coughs> for uh, for restaurants at, when you know times of economic challenge and pinch? You have Absolutely. to rethink how those high end restaurants work. Hundred percent. Obviously, you know I'm the culinary director for Rare Restaurants, so I look after all the gauchos and M restaurants in the UK, and we're feeling the pinch. You know, there's there's not a single restaurant in the country that's not feeling mm. the current uh, climate that we're all trying to you know survive in, and We've changed menus, we've changed price points um, to try and still, you know, be appealing to the, the, the majority. But the, the problem is, and, and it's something that's affecting all of us, is the cost of everything's going up. So it's, it's going up for us as well. So to still make yourself competitive, like there's, there's only so much we can do before we have to start passing some of that back to the consumer. But obviously then it means the consumer struggles to then come and dine. So it's, it's 
it's a tough time for all of us, 100%. Um, you mentioned Gaucho. Um, uh, without, uh, I'm not on commission, but I have to say I've been um, uh, a while ago in one of the best states I've ever had. Thank you. Right, get out of the way. Now, um, M Restaurants, uh, which you also mentioned, there's a brilliant phrase, I think, on your website that you've referred to them as gastronomic playgrounds. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What, what do you mean by that? I always say food is supposed to be fun, food is, should be playful, and our dining experience is exactly that. So when you walk into our restaurants, one, we want you to feel like you're in a home away from home, and then two, we want you to have fun. We want to put a smile on your face. So, you know, our, my food is, is playful, it is um, it, it's designed to put a smile on your face, and there's a lot of theatrics with my cuisine, and, you know, there's dishes which are served with smoke or on fire, and you know, there's, there's expect the unexpected when you come into M. <laughs> expect a glass of a playground, exactly that. Is it, is it as good as, if I remember rightly, the, the white rabbit from Alice in Wonderland who came in on <laughs> show one or something and the chef popped the, the, um, the balloon and all the little bits went over your, your face and Michelle's face was an absolute picture. I mean, it was just, <laughs> it was real. Like we literally, I think there was, a, there was a beautiful moment where we look at each other and then we just burst out laughing because we just, we couldn't believe what we just witnessed. No, there won't be any bunnies or rabbits popping out <laughs> you at M, but yeah. <laughs> so um, let's talk about what you've been doing here at the show, because I know you've been incredibly busy. Um, yeah. What, first of all, have you been cooking? So I've done two dishes today in all my demos. I've still got one more to go. Um, I'm doing a skirt steak with a cowboy butter, which is... Like, I, I always try and do secondary cuts when I do steak demos these days because, one, it's a cheaper, more affordable cut, and two, I genuinely believe they stand up to the primal cuts if you cook them well, you know, and, and skirt is one of my favorite pieces of meat to eat. And cowboy butter is a sauce that's almost been forgotten. You know, you don't really see it on menus anywhere these days, and I absolutely love it. Like, it's... it's <laughs> I've made everyone laugh when, during the demos where I describe it as it's, it's pure and utter filth but it's it's amazing you know it's, it's full of flavour it's full of umami there's anchovies in it garlic horseradish mustard like it just it shouldn't be good mm. but it's incredible mm. it's an indulgent sauce to go with your steak um skirts that you're saying which, are, mm -hmm. which is a piece of beef I mean the French for years have had sort of anglais and we have yeah, bavette which exactly. are cheaper cheaper cuts um and that is a consideration for people when they're going out buying. They come to a show and, and they, they see what you're cooking. And those affordable bits, there are other cuts of meat across uh, different, different animals which mm -hmm. are worth looking at. What, what sort of advice would you give people? You, you've mentioned the beef, but lamb's so expensive yeah. at the moment. I mean, are there, are there cheaper cuts of lamb that you can use? And, Absolutely. And I always say that the, the braising cuts are where you will save your money, you know. And if you go for those, those less attractive look you know sort of cuts of meat with with your pork you're looking at your um your ribs which are, are still quite affordable at the moment but are amazing to eat um your shoulders or the pork knuckle is is quite a good price same with the lamb you know if you look for those secondary cuts like the shanks and the, the shoulder you can feed far more like I always do lamb shoulder as my Sunday roast because I know I've then still got probably Monday and Tuesday to repurpose the leftovers, yeah. you know, and I'll do a stir fry on a Monday or a fried rice or even a shepherd's pie or something like that, you know. So those bigger cuts, which are more affordable, they take more work, more cooking, but it goes much, much further, especially when you're feeding the family. Yeah. And if you can cook once and eat twice. Exactly. Win-win. 100%. We're all, we're all time poor, you know, we all live busy lives. So, yeah, that's, that's one of my ways of, I batch cook without batch cooking, if that makes sense. 
How did it all start for you? Chefing. I've always loved food. I've always, I was that kid that, you know, used to be in the kitchen with their mum on the weekend, learning how to bake or make sauces. Like I remember I was, my, one of my earliest memories of food was when I was five years old and um, we were at a family member's house and they did a, a Sunday roast, but they didn't serve gravy. And I was just, I, I just remember going, but why? How can you do this without gravy? Like it's what ties the whole thing together. And from that moment, I've been obsessed with sauces. And I always knew it's what I wanted to do. I went the long way around, you know, I, I went to uni first, I got my degree. I started cooking whilst at uni as, as a part-time job. Um, but as, as soon as I went into a professional kitchen, I knew this, is, this will be my life, mm. you know. It's a tough industry. Yeah. What advice would you give to some of the many young people that come to this show and will be watching you and mm -hmm. some of the other celebrity chefs and thinking, do you know what, that's what I want to do. What advice would you give to them? I always say to kids, I do, a, I do a lot of talks and stuff at, at schools because I don't think we champion our industry enough as a long-term viable career. It's, it is hard work, but anything that's worth having in life is hard work. You know, so just start. And there's so many different ways and avenues you can get into it now, whether it's modern-day apprenticeships, whether you go to a, a great catering college, or if you just go straight into a restaurant and, you know, get on the tools and, and start learning your trade there. I always say learn as much as you can from a chef and then keep moving in the early years. But I say keep moving, I mean after one year, two years, you know, because you really want to suck up as much knowledge from different styles of cooking in those early years so that you can understand and then learn what you want to cook and how you want to cook later on in your career. Do you spend more time running restaurant businesses now than you do cooking? Um, 50-50, like I'm still in the, especially when I'm in, because I split my time between Australia and, and the UK. When I'm in the UK, I'm in the kitchens all the time. You know, I'm developing dishes, I'm teaching, I'm training, you know, it's what I love to do, I'm a chef. Um, but yes, I do have a lot of, of the business side that I have to do now as well, um, which I find enjoyable, not as enjoyable as cooking, but you know, that's life. Um, Two questions. One, uh, firstly, what's your guilty pleasure? All high-end chefs have a guilty pleasure. Trust me, I've spoken to them all. And secondly, end of a, a long, hard day, you come in, you could do, if you like, open the fridge, a ready, steady, cook thing or whatever else. What, what might be your sort of go-to late supper? So, guilty pleasure. Oh, dear, there's, there's too many, unfortunately. There's a lot more guilty pleasure than being good <laughs> these days. Um... I, I'm, I'm British. I love, absolutely love a kebab. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> love, love a good kebab, though. You know, yeah, yeah absolutely can't, can't go wrong with that. Um, a quick meal that I'll rustle up when I get home. I, I love a Asian cuisine, especially Southeast Asian cuisine. You know, and I, it, one of the reasons I love it is you can cook it so quickly. So noodles is my throw-together dish, 100%. You know, I've always got little bits left over in my fridge. And, to, you know, so, I, yeah, I always throw together a quick stir-fry. Just finally, um, you've had the Australian experience, you've got a lot of, of, of experience around the world. Is the UK leading the way in multicultural cuisine? Yes. I think you've got countries, I think America is doing very good as well in terms of 
of um, the diversity of their cuisines on offer because it is quite a multicultural country as well. I think UK is absolutely right up there, especially, you know, cities like Birmingham, London, you know, which are very diverse. Uh, I, I would still like to see more. I think there's always, you know, more, especially, uh, you know, some of those cuisines. I'd love to see more get to the top end, mm. you what's, know. So what's missing, therefore? I, I, that more than anything, you know, in the last few years, especially in London, you've seen the rise of African cuisine, mm. you know, and you've got a Koya, you've got a Coco now, which are, are doing really good African cuisine. I would love to see a Caribbean restaurant hit that sort of level as well. I'd love to see a, um, you know, some absolutely outstanding uh, Congolese or, or something like that as well to, to, you know, to really make it to the, the forefront of, of our of our dining scene. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I'll just pick up on that if I may, because I think there was some Caribbean cuisine was presented to you in the, in the <coughs> television programme. and. Yeah. And it set me thinking that people go on holiday and they bring back culinary experiences and yeah. they want to go and replace them. I know um, Sean McEnough is, is here mm-hmm. and he has this pop-up restaurant in Brixton. Yeah. And it's very much home cooking to remind people of their travels. Yeah. If you take that to too high a level, do you start to create a separation between people's experience and then what they get when they go to that high-end restaurant? I'm playing devil's advocate. In my opinion, no. That's always the worry. And a lot of people are always concerned by that. But I think there's a space at every level for every cuisine. You know, there's, you've got your street food, you've got your, you know, middle of the road, and then you've got your high end. Each cuisine can sit in any of those pockets and each cuisine has their version of all three. It's just, we don't necessarily see it, you know, and obviously when people travel to the Caribbean, they do go to resorts mainly, maybe they'll do like the, the, the vendors or go to some smaller, like beautiful sort of authentic Caribbean restaurants. But there's a lot of Caribbean chefs who are cooking at a high level, who have lived here mm. and been trained in some of the best restaurants here and then do those do the same cuisine, but in a way which may not visually straight away go, you know it's that dish, but then you eat it and the flavor profile is spot on. And I'd love to see those chefs get championed more and, you know, for them to have their moment in the, in that's the light. A, that's a fair point. That counters the argument that you eat with your eyes first, yeah. doesn't it? Because that, well, that, and that's a whole argument. It's true. We, it's we, true. Could, yeah. we could talk about that forever. <laughs> Mike, an absolute pleasure uh, to catch up with you. Thank you for coming into the studio. I know Thanks how busy you are, uh, but it's been uh, really good to catch up with you. No, thank you for having me.